Our scripture today is from Titus 3, 1 through 7. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you have saved us, that you have called us to be your children, joint heirs with Christ, and that that is only by your mercy and love towards us, not by our own doing. We thank you for the chance to come and worship you together this morning, to be taught from your word. We pray that you would give Mark wisdom um, and faithfulness to your word. We pray, pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. We have today and next Sunday left in Titus. We'll be wrapping everything up next week. Uh, to re- remind us, the book of Titus is written by Paul to Titus, which is why it's called Titus. And Titus is on the island of Crete. He is organizing all the churches of so the believers in each town. He's creating um, an organization within the church to show and to teach them what does eldership look like? What does true teaching look like? What does false teaching look like? How should you respond to false teaching? Why should you preach or teach strong biblical doctrine? And all of that coming together in the next two weeks he starts now in Titus chapter 3, this, this, he starts this first chapter, or this third chapter, the first verse, he says, remind them. Now, last week, if you were here, we received communion together in order to remember Christ's sacrifice for us upon the cross and how he saved us. Last Monday was Memorial Day to remember those who fought and died for our country and for our freedom. Our phones even have an app to remind us of things that need to get done. Even in the Old Testament, Israel is given a number of festivals in order to remind them of God's work in their history. And in today's passage, Paul charges Titus to remind the Cretan believers. And so why... Do we need to be reminded of things? Well, simply put, shocker of all shocks, we tend to forget. (laughs) That's why we need reminders. Reminders remind us of important things that will affect us negatively if we forget. Now, if you remember a few weeks ago, I confessed, and I did tell my mom I confessed in front of everyone that I had forgotten her birthday. 
It was not on my phone, and if it's not on my phone, it doesn't exist. I'm sorry. It just doesn't happen. And so shortly thereafter, I put it on my phone. Why it wasn't there before, I have no idea. But it was to remind me, make sure you say happy birthday to your mom. It wasn't there. I forgot. And there were negative effects to that, although mom showed grace and love to me. Well, these eight verses today in Titus, that's what is happening Titus is to remind these believers. These are not unbelievers. These are not people who've never heard the gospel before, these Cretans. These are believers who are new in their faith, who are trying to, be, to grow in their faith, and, and Titus is attempting to teach them and continue to help them to grow. Now, over the past number of weeks, we've learned the importance of sound, spiritually healthy doctrine that is founded in and upon the trustworthy word of God. For it is sound doctrine and teaching which God uses to transform transform lives from spiritually dead to spiritually alive, from eternal death in hell to eternal life in heaven. At the center of this sound doctrine, this sound teaching that Titus is to give to the Cretans and then for us to hear, whether it's from the front from uh, on a Sunday morning or in Sunday school or or a small group, or Bible study. At the center of this sound doctrine is the willing sacrifice of Christ to shed His blood as an atonement for our sins. He paid the price. He paid the price of death due by us for our sins against our holy God so that, and this is what we saw last week, that we might become His possession. That through Him, He purifies for Himself us, a people, to do good works which will glorify him. He saved us for him and his glory. And our lives then are to reflect this truth to those around us. Now, how are the Cretan believers, and then bringing it to us today, how are we who believe today to live out these good works with God and godliness The answer is found in the first word, remember, or he says, remind them. Remember that we were transformed to live godly lives and remember why and how we are even able to live these godly lives that we're called to. So that's what we're going to look at. Remember that we were transformed as God's people to live godly lives and remember why and how we are even able to live the godly lives that we are called to do. Now, before, before we even start getting into this, I, I feel like we need to do a disclaimer too. This is not legalism, as in like you have to be a good person in order to be saved. Like you have to do a certain amount of things to please God enough in, in, that you will merit or earn God's salvation for you or his love for you in the sense of salvation. That is not what is being said here. These Cretans are already saved. They're going to be in heaven. They're going to be in the eternal presence of God. And then he starts, remind them. So this is not legalism. This is not moralism. Like You're just going to be a really good person. It's deeper than that. It's more than that. This is about transformed lives. And so, first thing, we need to remember that we were transformed. 
A godly life is one which is submissive to rulers and authorities, obedient to God, ready for every good work, speaks evil of no one, avoids quarreling, is gentle, and shows perfect courtesy towards all people. I love Paul's lists because they're impossible. They're, they're just, they're so hard. How do you, let's just take a how do you show perfect courtesy toward all people? especially when they're jerks to you, right? It's so, like, how am I supposed to, dude, this is, this is a big, this is not just, like, people who are nice. He's saying friends and enemies that we are to be courteous towards. And Titus is to remind the Cretan believers to remember to live a life that is godly. Remind them to do these things because they, like us today, easily forget that faith without works is dead. Or as Paul uses uh, words in, in chapter 1, verse 16, Titus 1, 16, when speaking about false teachers, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This list is a heavy load, and it's not even an extensive list by Paul. So how are we supposed to do these things? It's great to remember. It's great to be reminded that it's your mom's birthday, but unless you actually call, does it really mean it? Well, mom, I was reminded about it. I just didn't call you. As Christians, we tend to forget that when we believed, we were transformed. We were changed. We were made new by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you are saved, you are different you are transformed. You are made new. There's no exceptions. Now, sometimes that transformation is like teeny tiny, and sometimes it's massive, but still you're different. You're changed. There's no exceptions to the rule. As Christians, we are made new by the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's not a one-and-done transformation. When we're saved, we're changed, we're transformed, but Christ continues to, as we saw last week, train and mold us through what the Bible calls sanctification, a lifelong process of being made more and more into the glorified image and character of Christ. How are we to live out these list of things, not just here, but where Paul also gives other lists. How are we supposed to do that? Christ changes us and trains us and molds us to live like him. And so he says, remember. Remember how we are to live as Christians because we all were once foolish and disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in wickedness and jealousy, hating others and hating one another. Those are Paul's words. That's how we used to be as Christians. We all once lived ungodly lives. And we should remember how we used to live so that we don't follow our tendency to forget and slowly move back towards living that kind of life. What this isn't saying, though, is that we remember so that we might show grace and compassion to those who are unsaved by God. That's true, but that's not what Paul is saying in this passage, in this moment. 
He wants Titus to remind the Cretan believers why they are to remember to live godly lives. And he says very bluntly, because it was God who saved them. Why do you live godly lives, Cretans? Because God saved you. Because God saved you. And now I'm going to go into, if you, if you like, if you go to pastor's conferences, you like listening to sermons, some of the really famous ones are like, well, I have 14 points for you. And I don't normally do that, right? I got seven points for you. Okay, they're going to go very quickly. There are seven reasons why and how we are to live godly lives. Why? Why should we remember these things? Well, okay, so here's the seven. We're going to go through them pretty quickly. Seven reasons given in these verses, verses four through seven. Verse four begins with one of the most powerful words in Scripture. And what is it? You could talk. But, but, okay, you're to live godly lives because this is how you used to live. Used to live. But something happened. Something changed. Though we were all once ungodly, something changed. And this is the first reason, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Paul isn't speaking specifically of Jesus appearing in the manger that's not, or, or being born. That's, that's not what he's talking about. What he's saying, the context of this passage points instead to God's saving work being revealed through the preaching and the teaching of God's Word. The goodness and loving kindness of Christ was revealed to the Cretans by Paul's preaching of the trustworthy word of God. They heard and they believed the gospel message of salvation from their sins through Jesus Christ alone. And so it was with all of us. If you are a believer, you heard the gospel and you believed the gospel. Nothing revealed God's goodness and loving kindness to us more than when He saved us. This is how we used to live, and He still saved us. And in that, He shows His loving kindness and His goodness. I, mean, what, I think goosebumps just thinking about that. What a beautiful passage. And the second reason is that he saved us, quote, not because of works done by us in righteousness. Righteousness is an attribute of God's being in which he is always as perfect and just in his character and judgments. And none of us can say that, right? Are you always perfect and just in everything you say and do? Well, no, the answer is no. It's just, we're humans. It's just reality. Now, before we were saved, we lived ungodly lives. We lived lives incapable of living out God's righteousness because there was nothing righteous in us. Now, that doesn't mean we didn't do good things. That's not what righteousness means. Righteousness is not good things. It might be part of it. Righteousness is being perfect and right before a perfect, holy God. That's, that's way bigger than just being a good person. As being perfect in all ways. But in the reality is before we were saved by Christ, there was nothing righteous in us. 
Romans chapter 3, one of my favorite chapters, probably the, my favorite chapter of all of Scripture. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 19, reads this, as it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. By nature, by our human nature, there was no righteous work that we could do to save ourselves because we did not do any righteous works. This is all pre-Christ, okay? This is before we are saved. And then the famous passage, the famous verse after this is Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What does that mean? It means there is nothing we can do to please God enough so that he would save us. Nothing. Which leads to then the third reason. God saved us not because of our own works done by us in righteousness, because we're not righteous before Christ. But, there's that word again. Not saved by works, righteous works by us, but according to His own mercy. God saved us according to His own compassion. Not your compassion, not my compassion. Not fairness. My kids, Levi's not here. My youngest, Levi. He uses that word fair. I told him it's a swear word in our house now. It's not fair. I was like, you really want me to be fair? God saved us according to his own compassion for us. Oh my gosh. He looked upon our state of ungodliness and unbelief and in his great mercy and compassion, he revealed his goodness and his loving kindness to us and he saved us. The fourth reason now as to why and how we are to live godly lives is that he saved us according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now, these are two very deep and heavy topics. Each one of them is worthy of a sermon series in and of themselves. We're not going to spend that much time on it. We're going to go through it very, very quickly, because, but they are super rich and super deep and super awesome when it comes to Scripture and God's teaching of these things. But it's sufficient for us today to give a brief explanation of each one of them. Regeneration is the making of something dead alive. Regeneration is the making of something dead dead alive. And in this case, before we were saved, we were spiritually dead. Unrighteous people, incapable of doing any righteous work. And so we had to be made alive. Now, there's a famous illustration from a monk a long time ago who took his students out, gave them dead sticks, stuck them in the ground, and then said, we're going to water these for the next 
three weeks or 30 days or whatever, and every day they'd walk out and they'd water these dead sticks. And guess what happened? Nothing. They're dead. There's nothing that could happen with that stick. It is dead. Dead things just are dead. They do nothing else. That's our state before Christ. We could not do anything in ourselves because we were dead in our sins and in our trespasses. And so we had to be made alive. Or, in the words of Christ and Nicodemus in John chapter 3, we had to be born again by the power or the washing of the Holy Spirit who comes to dwell in us. And so He makes us alive. He makes what was dead alive. And then after our regeneration, the Holy Spirit then renews us, sanctifies us, changes us in order to be able to do righteous works. See how the righteous works don't come before we're saved. They come after we're saved. So God saved us according to his own mercy by sending himself to dwell in us, making us spiritually alive and sanctifying us to live godly lives. Who gets the credit in that? I'm a dead stick. I ain't got no credit. I might try to talk my way into it, but the reality is this is a passage all about the glory of, the, of our great God. Now, the fifth reason is that all of the previous reasons that we said that, that were stated here are accompanied or accomplished so that, that, that word, those words are actually in there. Why does all this happen? It happens so that we are justified by His grace. That's the fifth reason. Justification is the act of God to make us acceptable before Him. We see this in the Old Testament where the high priest was to be purified, to be made uh, acceptable before offering uh, a sacrifice before God. No sin could enter the presence of the holy God without a punishment of death. And so something had to happen to the priest. Now for us today... We are justified not by rituals or by sacrifices of animals or righteous works of our own. We are are justified by God's grace. Grace is unmerited favor. There is nothing we can do or say to demand God's justifying us. The famous words of my youngest, well, that's not fair, God, does not work. Well, you saved him, you should save me too. That's not fair. That's not how it works. There is nothing we can do or say to demand God justifying us. Our justification before God is given by his grace alone. If we have to do something in order to earn it, it's no longer grace. Paul says that in Romans. Grace cannot be earned. It cannot be merited. It's given. Now, the sixth reason is that by being justified by His grace, we become heirs. Again, I'll do a whole sermon on that one, okay? If you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 4. This is probably one of the most famous passages, I, I think. This is what came to mind when I was reading this about becoming heirs, that we are justified by His grace 
we become heirs. This is Galatians chapter 4, and to give it in a context, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Again, this is Paul. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, let's talk about Christians, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, when the time was exactly right, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. God's justifying of unrighteous people by his grace makes us his children. We're adopted into his family as sons and daughters, fully seen by God to be worthy of receiving the inheritance. Before God, there is neither man nor woman, slave nor free, rich nor poor. There is children and not children. Salvation is not given to just an elite. It is given to all types of which, uh, people, which we saw in the, in the previous chapter. Men, women, young, old, slaves, masters. They are all given salvation by God. All types of people. And we're adopted into his family, worthy of receiving the whole inheritance, not just part of it. As God's sons and daughters, we are full heirs with Christ. Now think that one through. We used to live unrighteous lives. By His grace and mercy and compassion, He saves unrighteous people. He makes them righteous before His sight and before his eyes, but that's not the end. He actually gives us the inheritance that he gives to his son, Jesus Christ. So Christ is our Savior and our Lord. Let your mind just kind of wrap around this set, okay? Christ is our Savior and our Lord. That is true, but he is also our brother. He is our fellow heir through God. So in the sight of God the Father, we are as much a son and daughter of Him as His own Son, Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean we're divine. doesn't mean we're divinity. Okay, don't, don't go that far. That's called heresy. Okay? But we are receiving the same inheritance. We are seen in the eyes of the Father as a son, as a daughter. As a fellow heir of Jesus Christ, but heirs of what? And this is the final reason as to why and how we are to live godly lives. We become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, that's a weird statement. Because you would think, one would expect Paul to say at this point, we become heirs of eternal life, right? That's normally how we would speak. He's, 
Well, when you become heirs, you've inherited eternal life as a Christian. So that's the end, but he doesn't say that. He says, we have become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Why would he say that? Because I don't know about you, I haven't received eternal life yet. Like, literally, right? Every one of us, should the Lord not return during our lifetime, will one day die. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. None of us will live forever. And so we do not now receive the inheritance of eternal life. So when we hear, we receive eternal life by God through Christ, that doesn't mean now I'm immortal. It means I'm still going to die. I haven't received that eternal life yet. Instead, we receive the hope of eternal life. And if we remember back in chapter 1, this hope is not a wish. Like, man, I sure hope lunch is good today. Man, I sure hope my team wins the championship this year. I sure hope this. I sure hope that. That's not the hope that's found in the Bible. The hope that's found in Scripture is a certainty and a confidence that God will do and give what He promises. So if He says, you will receive eternal life, our hope is based on that. We say, not only like, man, I sure hope God keeps His promises. It's like, nope, God's going to keep His promise. I will receive eternal life one day, and I have the hope of eternal life because God never never lies. Titus chapter 1 verse 2. Our hope is found in Him and His promises. And so our inheritance we will receive one day. But until that day happens, we must remember. We must remember these things. Why are we called to live godly lives because we once did not live righteous, godly lives. And yet, in His great mercy, and His great compassion, in His grace, He made us fellow heirs with Christ and will give us eternal life. And now, will give us the hope of eternal life. So, hear these words. I'm going to read this passage. I'm going to read this passage again. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now, listen to this. Remember. Remind them. Remind these believers. Remind, if you want to make it today, remind Elm Creek to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show compassion, courtesy, perfect courtesy towards all people. Why? Because we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But, that's how we were. But, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, when we were saved, When he revealed the gospel to us, he saved us, 
not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy and compassion. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly. He didn't do it partially. He didn't do it just a bit. He like threw it on us and coated us. Through, uh, poured out on us richly the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ our Savior. Why? Why did he do all of these things? So that being justified by his grace, that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Our lives as God's people need to reflect the glory and the goodness and the righteousness of God God in Christ. And we do this because he saved us. He gave to us what we could not have ourselves or do ourselves. And so we need to remember Why do we need to remember? Because we so easily forget. Whether that's because of the troubles of this world, whether it's the sin in our own hearts, whatever it may be, circumstances in in life, we need to remember to live and to strive to continue to live, to to see the, the Holy Spirit sanctifying us and moving us and transforming us day by day glory by glory, little bits at a time each and every day for Him. We live for Him because we remember that one day we used to not. And in His great compassion and mercy, He saved us out of a life of unrighteousness to a life of righteousness. And then He says, remember Because our lives, remember last week, our lives are to reflect this truth to the people around us. The people will see us. They will hear us. And it's more than just, man, you're different. That's part of it. It will be obvious that we do not live as the world lives. Our lives are not our own. We are purchased with a price. We are a people purified for him. He is our king. He is our Lord. Not us, not our own hearts, not our emotions, not our intellect, not the culture of this world, not the person next to us, not our spouses, not our parents, not our kids. That is not, you can't disobey me later on, okay? That's not a, the, none of that. They are not our Lord and our Savior. They, we belong to God. And we need to remember, remember who we are. Remember that God is still working. Remember that he's still doing this in us. Each and every day, good day, bad day, God is still there and we still belong to him. Remember what God is doing. Remember what he did. Remember where we would be without him. And remember to live godly lives, not to earn his love and salvation but because he has loved and saved us. That's why we live for him. Father, I pray. This is, this is a hard teaching, God. This is hard. It's easy to say. It's easy to hear. It is so difficult, Father, to remember each and every day, each and every moment who we are in you. But God, you promise 
You promised to save us, and you have. We ask that you would remind us, God, each day. And may, as we think and we remember what you've done for us, that our lives, our words, our actions, all of who we are, Father, would just fall before you and glorify you and lift you up and make you the center. Father, we once were unrighteous, but now we are righteous because of you and your great mercy and compassion. Father, that we did not deserve. You did it for us. You saved us. And so we glorify you. Help us, Father, to live this out. Help us to grow in it. Help us, Father, never stop sanctifying us. Help us to become more and more like you in your greatness and your righteousness. And Father, may our lives as your people here at Elm Creek, may we not be about ourselves, individually or as a church. This is not about us. Father, this church may fail. I may fail. We may fail, but you never fail. You are faithful and true and powerful and glorious. And this is all about you, God. Remind us that we are yours because of you. We ask this in your name. Amen. Will you stand as we sing our final song?